Looking to create your best self, whether it's good for you lifestyle hacks, smarter ways to supplement or tasty tips to fuel optimal health. Talk Healthy Today provides you the latest research tools and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy starting today. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I am absolutely in love with doing this podcast. I would be thrilled if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the podcast. Now, on to the show. Joining us now is the incredible Gary Taubes. We're talking about his book, The Case for Keto, Rethinking Weight Control and the Science and Practice of Low-Carb, High-Fat Eating. Gary Taubes, such an honor, such a huge fan. Loved your book. I finished it this morning. Well, thank you. Can't wait to talk about it. The Case for Keto, you write, quote, the very simple assumption underlying the LCHF ketogenic diet is that it's the carbohydrate-rich foods, carbohydrate, excuse me, rich foods we eat that make us unhealthy, uh, both fat and sick. Uh, tell us about Louis Newberg and how in the 1930s he played a big role in this assumption. What, what a putz. Can I call him a putz? Yeah, he's a putz. Until the 1930s, there were basically two ways physicians thought about obesity. So there wasn't an obesity research community. There was like 12 doctors around the world who had a lot of obese patients. And occasionally they would write an article in the British Medical Journal or some German journal saying, you know, I've studied all these obese patients and this is what I think is going on. And so it was either they ate too much, you know, like the Falstaff in Shakespeare, you know, this guy with a big, you know, leg of lamb in one hand and a tankard of beer in the other, and that's why he's fat. Or they had some hormonal dysregulation and you they would gain weight, you know, regardless of how much they eat. There was a character on a George Bernard Shaw play who says, uh, you know, some people are just, you know, some people just put on weight, to, no matter how much they eat. So that was this sort of hormonal explanation. 1930, this guy, Lewis Newberg from the University of Michigan comes around. And he says, basically, I've done the first experiment ever to test the two hypotheses. It's really, he just followed like six patients, uh, you know, on, on calorie-restricted diets and tried to carefully measure their weight independent of water and stuff like this. And he says, you know, when you restrict their calories, it doesn't matter if they're lean or fat, they lose weight the same way. Therefore, all obesity is caused by eating too much. I mean, it's like one leap of assumption, leap of faith to another. It's terrible science, but he's the only one who's ever done this, who claimed to have resolved it experimentally. And so the medical community doesn't actually buy in immediately. The German and Austrian researchers make fun of them. This idea that obesity is caused by eating too much doesn't tell you anything about fat accumulation, like why men and women fatten differently. Meaningless. But... World War II comes along, the German and Austrian physicians who have been carefully documenting their research on obesity, they vanish, that, that school evaporates, and Louis Newberg's theory carries the day. And by the 1960s, obesity researcher is in the U.S., which is dominating medical science now, because the U.S. wasn't... Uh, uh, didn't have to spend a decade rebuilding from the war. Uh, in the U.S., the obesity research dominated by psychologists and psychiatrists who are trying to figure out how to get fat people to eat less. So never are they studying why people accumulate fat. They can just say physiologically and hormonally, why do people accumulate fat and, or not? They're always studying how much people eat. And on occasion, some very 
well-respected, brilliant scientists and medical researchers came along and said, this is crazy. You know, clearly obesity is, is some hormonal phenomenon that we don't understand. But, the, you know, eating too much school just dominated. And well, now we've been living with it ever since. When I was in college, and I come from a long line of lean people. And when I was in college, my very good friend was heavy. And we lived together the second year. And we cooked together. And we, were, we didn't have any money. We lived on rice and beans and vegetables. I don't think I ever cooked meat. We ate the same amount. She wasn't sneaking bonbons. I mean, when we weren't in class, we were together. And I thought that's kind of odd. And then in 1998, I created a show after I got my master's in public health called Health Power. And I had this woman on, or it was 1999, uh, on a local TV station. And she was talking about how carbs, sugar, starches are the ones that are bad for you. And they're bad for your cardiovascular health and your weight gain. And I got so many calls and the station got calls and emails. And I thought, wait a second. And it made me think of my friend. And I'm like, okay, there's something going on here. So I started eating like a higher fat diet. Well, and again, this is why the reason I wrote this book, right, is to try and get people. It's called The Case for Keto, but originally it was called How to Think About How to Eat. And we had to change that title for reasons I won't go into. Um, you know, we still have this belief system that, that the, the problem is overeating. All the research, like so whenever you read about a new study, some gene that's linked to obesity, the researchers immediately assume that somehow the gene determines how much you're going to eat or maybe how much energy you're going to expend. They never think in terms of what it does to your fat storage and your fatty acid metabolism. Um, so, yeah, how do you get people to think differently about it? Well, one of the, you know, you write books, <laughs> hope people read it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, what happened here, what was so vital is, it wasn't until the 1960s that researchers studying fat metabolism. So these aren't the people studying obesity. The people studying obesity, like I said, are psychologists and psychiatrists. But you got these lab scientists who are studying fat cells in, in petri dishes in their laboratory <clears throat> or, you know, in animals, and they realize that the hormone insulin dominates fat storage. So when you elevate insulin, you basically store calories as fat, and we secrete insulin to the carbohydrate content of our diets. And simultaneously, physicians who were reading this research as it was being published, the most famous being Robert Atkins, said, well, geez, if that's what's happening, maybe if we remove the carbs, we'll mobilize the fat and people will be able to lose weight. So, you know, they, they tried it on themselves and it worked and they tried it on their patients and it worked. And then they wrote diet books about it. <clears throat> and as soon as they wrote a diet book, which is the natural thing you want to do if you want to get the word out beyond the medical community, now you're accused of being venal and only in it for the money. And now you're perceived as a snake oil salesman. So the problem in this field is that the physicians, the establishment researchers fail. They just got it wrong. And then they promoted their wrong answer because they were thin as far as they were concerned, they were right. And then they left the doctors to figure it out. And when the doctors did figure it out and wrote about it, then they accused the doctors of being snake oil salesmen because they were arguing something different than the mainstream. And they were influenced by Ansel Keys in the 1950s? Well, so that's what, yeah. So while this is happening, all post- World War II, uh, this fellow Ansel Keys at the University of Minnesota decides that dietary fat causes heart disease. 
It's got no real evidence to support it. It's an interesting hypothesis. So beginning in the 1960s, people start doing experiments called randomized controlled trials to test the hypothesis. It fails test after test after test. But the journalists get involved. The uh, public health authorities start saying, well, we haven't proven it yet, which is always an interesting way to Phrasing. That means we know we're right. Eventually, we're going to prove it. We just haven't proven it so far. How many years has it been now? <laughs> 70 years. And by the 1970s and 1980s, the Congress got involved. I told this story in my first book at length, Good Calories, Bad Calories. Yeah, awesome Nina, yeah Nina Teicholz tells it better in, in her book, her. The Big Fat Surprise. Um, we... Uh, yeah, so we buy into this idea that dietary fat causes heart disease. You got to avoid dietary fat. So we're going to tell everybody to eat carbohydrates instead. And now, if you want to do a diet that will lower your insulin and mobilize the excess fat you've stored and allow the rest of your body to actually use it for fuel, which is what you want it to do. You've got to eat a diet that theoretically is going to give you heart disease. That's why Atkins was crucified. I mean, the, the medical community didn't like the fact that he was getting rich, but he was arguing we should eat high-fat foods at a period in time when uh, high-fat foods were thought to cause heart disease. Now, the dietary fat hypothesis has fallen apart, and if you read any any meta-analysis, any systemic review published by anyone other than the American Heart Association, they will acknowledge that. No, they won't. And it never goes away. I was like, you know, in COVID, I'm now exercising at home. So I have a rowing machine. I'm doing my rowing and I get to watch TV while I do it. So yesterday, I'm watching one of Netflix's hit show, which is frankly not my cup of tea, but it's called Virgin River, and it's about a no, I've heard nurse, of it. Yeah, yeah, a nurse from LA who goes to this you know small town in marijuana country in Northern California, that um, so one of the main figures in the town has a heart attack, and there she is telling this woman, "You have to eat a heart healthy diet. I'm going to throw out everything in the refrigerator that's got cheese. The butter goes. The meat goes. You know, it's all." What are we going to have for dinner tonight? You know, boiled skinless chicken breast. So, yeah, it's kind of the worst thing you could do for people. But this is the conventional wisdom. And if you're one of those people who is, like most of us now, going to get heavy and lose control of our weight and our blood sugar as we get older, this is the worst advice you can give. It really is. You know, the other thing I found so interesting in your book is looking at the, the, the differences between people who tend to fatten easily and tend who tend to be lean, right? Like I mentioned my friend in college, she'd been heavier her whole life. I was always a twig. I think looking at that and saying, okay, so for these people, like my husband, he can eat grains till the cows come home. He is lean. He's always been lean. He exercises like a maniac. But other people that I know who fatten easily or people you talk about, they need to eat this way. Give us a little bit about what's going on in the cells. Well, so, you know, for starters, again, the conventional wisdom is the difference between you and your roommate right. was that she ate to excess and you didn't, which is crazy. Because if you've ever known anyone who struggles with obesity, it's you don't think of them as overeating or gluttony. I mean, we all knew kids in college who drank too much and ate too much. But we also knew kids in college like me who drank too much and ate too much and didn't get fat. So if you're, if you're overweight or obese, you blame that behavior, you blame the 
overweight on the behavior. If you're not, it's just like, ha, 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 boy, he has a healthy appetite. Um, so what I'm trying to do with this book is say, first of all, that's insane. So lean people are not, fat people are not just lean people who ate too much. We are physiologically different. And all the necessary physiology was worked out by the 1960s. So a lot of hormones influence fat accumulation, secreting less estrogen, and estrogen inhibits fat formation. So as you get older and pass through menopause, I mean, in all this case, it can be demonstrated in animals. Actually, researchers who studied uh, hormonal regulation of weight in animals knew in the 1920s that if they removed the ovaries from female animals, they would fatten up. You know, it's just what happened. So it's sort of, we know all that. The link to diet and the link to your ability to manipulate your weight goes through the hormone insulin. And, you know, to a lesser extent, glucagon and growth hormone, but insulin dominates it. And again, you secrete insulin to the carb content of the diet for all intents and purposes. So if you want to minimize, the best you can do through diet, as far as I'm concerned, to get lean and healthy, as lean and healthy as you can be, is through by minimizing the carb content of the diet. And that's effectively a ketogenic diet. That's why it's called the case for keto. Clearly not everyone has to do that. And most people like your husband, some people can tolerate all the carbs they want. But for those of us predisposed to get fat and diabetic, we have to minimize carbs if we want to maximize our health. Right. And for yeah. people who are brand new to this, like what are ketones and you use that instead of glucose for fuel? And yeah. So the nutrition committee, again, I got into this as an investigative journalist and I was just stunned by all the misconceptions that are promulgated as conventional wisdom. So one of the things you hear all the time is the human brain requires 130 grams of carbohydrates a day to function. And what's true is that the human brain will burn about 130 grams of carbs a day when you're eating a carb-rich diet. The brain is a huge tool we have to suck up the blood sugar and you know use it for fuel. If you're fasting, you go without food for a day, 24 hours without food is our you know, uh, Paleolithic ancestors often would, then you burn up the carb supply, the backup stores, glycogen, and now your liver starts converting the fat you begin to mobilize into these molecules called ketones. And ketones were first discovered in uncontrolled diabetics who were dying of their disease in the mid-19th century. So the diabetes community <clears throat> has always thought of them as pathological. Uh, there's diabetic ketoacidosis, which is how uncontrolled diabetics often die. It's a horrible fate. And so they would see these massive levels of ketones in the blood. And you could smell the acetone in their breath. And they thought this is killing people. But even 100 years ago, again, you had German and Austrian clinicians saying, wait, 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 this is an entirely different thing than the sort of benign ketosis that we see when people go a day without food or a day without carbohydrates. And so when you don't eat carbs, your liver takes the fat that you're now mobilizing, the fat you're eating, and converts it into ketones, and the ketone fuels your brain. And it's completely benign. And this has been well understood since the 1960s when a Harvard researcher named George Cahill pioneered the research. And 
should have changed how we all think about this. I mean, Cahill was as uh, well-respected and prominent a metabolism researcher as there was in the world at the time. He published numerous papers on this, and the medical community just, they, they didn't read those papers. They were in the wrong journals. I don't know. So they they still think of ketones as bad and a reason why you shouldn't do a ketogenic diet. And a ketogenic diet just means that you're not eating carbs, so your liver is upping its production of ketones to keep your brain happy. And your brain is perfectly happy being fueled on mostly ketones. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read a lot about this. I've obviously, I've been in the, in the high fat camp for a long time. It's just so frustrating when you talk to people who they look like you have, you know, 10 heads or something. You learn how to talk about this. I talk about that. The book was going to be called How to Think About How to Eat. So at the end of the book is, you know, one mother of an obese child who's talking about how necessary it is to understand this. And she also, she learned how to basically, you don't say I'm on keto or I'm on a ketogenic diet. I didn't really want keto in the title, but the publishers recognize it's a nice search term on Google. You know, if you tell people, you know, we avoid starches and sweets and grains and eat healthy fats, everybody's all like, yeah, that's great. That's terrific, you know? But if you say I'm doing keto, which is the same thing, yeah, I understand. Hey, my book's called Clean Eating Dirty Sex. So I got a lot of flack from people who don't have a sense of humor and get the wordplay of clean and, and dirty. Never mind my book, Gary. Jumping back into yours, I love how you write. The only way to eat a satiating meal while minimizing insulin secretion is to add fat. It's the one macronutrient that does not stimulate an insulin response. I thought it was so telling when you talked about these semi-starvation diet and, and there isn't even much benefit. And then the person is just a, a, a heavy starving person. It's not even working. And and it there's just so much in the book that's so essential. We have so many people who are struggling and have shame and feel bad about themselves and are looked at as gluttonous, like I said, and if there wasn't such a stigma around this. So I admire you so much, Gary. I have for years for all the great work that you do. All right, Gary, let's talk a little bit about semi-starvation diets. You write, the important question, however, is why is it that some of us have to be chronically starved or semi-starved uh, exercise portion control and be hungry for a lifetime to be lean or at least leaner and others don't. This is another question that is rarely asked. I really liked your take on this. Talk to us about that. Okay. Well, so one of the points I'm making in this book clearly is uh, there's a complete and utter lack of sort of scientific curiosity among the research community about the questions they're asking. And often they don't even, they don't realize that there are different variations of how to ask questions. So they'll say, for instance, that obesity is caused by positive energy balance, just taking more calories than they expend. But they don't ask the simple question, which is why is some of us only make it into energy balance when we're say 30 or 50 or 80 pounds overweight. So you could be, and many of us are, you can be more severely obese and weigh 350 pounds, but you will stay at 350 pounds for years on end. So you're in energy balance at 350, whereas the people who are asking the questions might be in energy balance at 160, and they don't ask why the difference. So now the question is, how do you reduce get into energy balance significantly less than 350. Um, so the answer from our lean friends is, well, you eat less. So you create a negative energy balance. And somehow the idea is you're going to lose enough weight 
that your body is going to expend less, which it'll do as you're lighter, and eventually you'll get to the point where what it's expending is equal to what you're eating. Um, incredibly naive thinking. And they don't ask the question, if I tell someone they have to be in negative energy balance, that's saying they have to reduce how much they eat, so they, have, they can't eat to satiety anymore. So remember, they have this idea in their head that their people are getting fat because they're eating too much. And they don't, the implication is you're a glutton. So you can afford to eat less and just not be a glutton and that'll be fine. But if you're not a glutton, if you're, you know, eating in moderation like everyone else, which is possible, now the idea is you have to semi-starve yourself. And the question that isn't asked by these lean nutritionists and dietitians and obesity, which is, is what would happen if I semi-starved myself? So can I expect an obese person to sustain this level of calorie deficit? And the, the funny thing about this, or the tragic thing about this, is one of the most famous experiments in the nutrition world was an experiment to look into this question of what happens when we semi-starved lean people, although they weren't all lean. So this was an experiment done by Ansel Keys, the, who's famous for giving us the idea that dietary fat will cause heart disease. But when he was a younger nutrition researcher at the University of Minnesota in the early 1940s during the war, he did a famous experiment on starvation in which they recruited 34 conscientious objectors. They would semi-starve themselves be semi-starved so that the researchers could understand what famine, uh, what the phys physical and psychological effects of famine are. So when we liberated Europe from the Nazis, we would be confronted with famine, particularly in Eastern Europe. So they put these 34 subjects on what they called a semi-starvation diet, which was around 1,600 calories a day, which is what we're told to do now if you're men to lose weight. Women are often told to eat around 1,200 calories. So these 1,600 calories also was meant to model the kind of diet that they would expect people to be eating in famine conditions in Eastern Europe. So it was uh, green, some green vegetables, some starches like potatoes and tubers, and some very lean meat in moderation. So it was in effect what today we would call a very healthy diet and exactly what we tell people to eat minus the beans and tubers. Um, anyway, the so what happens when you semi-starve people? And again, these subjects were, well, th that was a leaner era. So the heaviest, I think, might have had a BMI around 27 or 28, which was overweight but not obese. Um, so when they put them on this, what they called a semi-starvation diet, the 1,600-calorie-a-day diet, and the result was they were starving. I mean, it's the simplest way to put it. They were hungry all the time. They thought about food all the time. They talked about food in their diaries. They chewed gum constantly. They had to actually institute a buddy system so they wouldn't allow these subjects to leave the confines of the experiment <clears throat> without wow. a buddy who would prevent them from cheating. Uh, several of them uh, experienced what the researchers in the two-volume book they wrote about this and about starvation in general called semi-starvation neurosis or psychosis, which was they had breakdowns from oh, yeah. being starved all the time. One of them actually tried to cut off his fingers with an axe to get out of the study.
Oh God, I, when I read that in the book, I was like, holy crap. But I know I get pretty hangry. Well, that's the thing. So it's sort of like, and this just went on and on. And then of course, when it ended and they refed them, they had to refeed them slowly because otherwise it would get sick. But when they made food available, they ate enormous quantities of food. And invariably, they gained back all the fat they had lost. They only lost about 15, 16, 17 pounds in total, maybe 20. I forget the exact number. But they gained back all the fat they lost and more, which they called pre-starvation obesity. And so they experienced everything that obese people experienced and do experience, and yet we continue to insist that the way for people who suffer from obesity to lose weight is that they have to eat less or semi-starve themselves. They don't use that terminology anymore. They did through the 1960s, and then I think it probably became clear to them that if they called these diets semi-starvation diets, it would be all too clear why people didn't follow them or couldn't follow them. Um, It just raises this question And this is how I came to think of it. I don't really get into this in the book, but we have this idea that, you know, people who get fat do so because they're in positive energy balance. And like I said, they, so the the research community is asking, why are they in positive energy balance? Well, that means they're eating too much. So why are they eating so much? And then they study eating behavior. Um, The, Other way to think about it, again, is ask this question, why is it some of us can be in energy balance at 160 pounds and some of us are in energy balance at 360 pounds and some of us with virtually no body fat and some of us with enormous amounts of body fat. And if we perturb that energy balance by starvation or exercise, you'll have the same response, whether or not you're an energy balance at 160, you're an energy balance at 360. So what you have to figure out how to do is take that person who's at 360 and how do you regulate their body or their fat accumulation such that they're an energy balance at 160, like a lean person. And then they could eat to satiety in theory they don't have to starve themselves. They don't have to deal with endless hunger. They get to eat with the so. So what? What does that take? And then, of course, why is it? You know, you're the question you want to know is why is it? Do some people only experience energy balance with enormous fat stores, and some people with very, you know, almost non-existent fat stores? So what's regulating that? And that's where I would think, obviously, if you're doing the a keto diet. You're going to that that's where that regulation can happen for people who fatten easily. Correct. Well, and that's the idea is uh, and the, you know, what my book hammers on. Um, by the 1960s, physiologists had the tools available to understand what regulates fat accumulation. And uh, there was an enormous amount of work done between the 1930s and the 1960s. But ultimately, it took two discoveries, two tools a way to measure fatty acids in the circulation, which was 1956, and a way to measure hormones, which was 1960. And now you could see what's regulating fat accumulation. And by the early 1960s, it was clear the hormone insulin dominated this. And you raise insulin, you store fat. And you lower insulin, you mobilize fat and oxide. So every hormone plays some role in fuel metabolism and fat storage because hormones are telling them they're signaling the body to do something. And because their bodies are rather remarkable uh, creations that have, you know, 
adapted over two million years or five, however long you want to make it. They never, they, 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 they no signaling molecule has only one purpose. So a molecule that might tell your body to start reproducing or to grow also tells your fat tissue and your liver, whatever the organs are necessary to make fuel available for that action to take place. So every hormone basically stimulates your fat tissue to release fat into the circulation, to mobilize it, or the technical term even to lipolysize the fat stored. And insulin tells signals the opposite. Insulin is the hormone of fat storage. And so, and we secrete insulin primarily in response to the carbohydrates in our diet. So what a ketogenic diet does, what keto does, it minimizes insulin secretion by removing effectively all the carbs except those in green leafy vegetables and replacing those carbohydrates with fat. So now you've basically minimize minimize the signal for fat storage and maximize the signal for using that fat for fuel. Well, I'm looking at this quote, uh, quote, the only way to eat a satiating meal while minimize, minimizing insulin secretion is to add fat. It's the one macronutrient that does not stimulate an insulin response. So that's a true, that's a meta, you know, textbook medicine, but the cosmic joke here is that in the 1960s, as the science was finally being worked out in the metabolism research, the people who studied fat metabolism tended to have PhDs, not MDs. Um, They published in journals like the Journal of Physiology or the American Physiological Society journals, not the New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA. as those people were working this out, the nutrition cardiology community were coming to this mistaken conclusion that dietary fat causes heart disease. In order to justify the belief that dietary fat causes heart disease story, um, and because obesity is so highly associated with heart disease, they had to assume that dietary fat also causes obesity. So then you get the invocation of this idea that because dietary fat is the densest of all calories, maybe somehow it fools our body into us overeating, taking in more than we expend. So the one fuel source you can use, ironically, to minimize fat accumulation, which is fat, is the fuel that was demonized in the 1960s and then 1970s. By the 1980s, this demonization was institutionalized by the government, and they put us on this low-fat, high-carb diet. And they end up transforming the carb. So in the early 19th, by from the 19th century through, say, 1965, the conventional wisdom is that carbohydrates are fat and so there's a line I quote in every one of my books, the first line of a British Journal of Nutrition article in 1963 by one of the two leading British dietitians, co-authored by one of the two leading British dietitians. And the first sentence is, every woman knows carbohydrates are fattening. This is what my mother grew up believing. This is the fundamental fact of a keto diet. Carbohydrates are fattening. Don't eat them. Okay. Right, Because if you eat them, they'll make you fat. They won't make everyone fat, just like cigarettes won't give everyone lung cancer. But for those of us who get fat, it's the carbohydrates through insulin regulating how much fat our fat stores. And uh, then we, by the 1980s, carbs were heart-healthy diet foods. They were what we were supposed to eat all the time. 
uh, Jane Brody of the New York Times, not a fan of my work, um, in 1985 published a book called The Good Food Book. It was the best, massive bestseller. She was the most influential nutrition writer in America, probably the world. And in this book, she says, look, we have to put aside our belief that carbohydrates are fattening. Because we now know that fat is fattening and causes heart disease, and so eating pasta is good for us. It doesn't have fat in it. So, and this coincides with an obesity epidemic. Right. So what happened then between 1965, as you said, up until then, they were saying carbohydrates make you fat. And then all of a sudden in the 80s, it was like, in 90s, it was like low carb, high sugar city. Well, and that's, so that's the thing. We decided dietary fat causes heart disease. So we just decided that. It was an interesting hypothesis. Well, they did some studies. Oh, okay. Most of the studies did not confirm the hypothesis, but eventually they got one that if they did their statistical analysis sloppily enough, because they had spent a hundred and, I forget if it was 150 or $115 million on this study. So they needed to get a positive result. The problem is when Congress okays that kind of money for a a research trial, an experiment, the assumption is that if you don't confirm your hypothesis, the money was wasted. So if you go in with the hypothesis that dietary fat causes heart disease and heart disease, you know, by raising cholesterol and cholesterol clogs arteries, and you do an experiment that doesn't confirm that, then that's considered a waste of money. Now, in science, there's nothing more important, right, than refuting Course. The numerous, you know, infinite number of incorrect hypotheses, but in medicine, it's seen as a waste of money. So by 1984, uh, well, Congress had allocated $250 million to two studies, one of them called the Mr. Fit study, multiple risk factor intervention trial failed. So in that study, and by failed, it means it didn't confirm the hypothesis that dietary fat causes heart disease. Rather, the people who in this multiple intervention experiment were put on the low-fat diet, had more heart disease than the people and, and died prematurely more often than the people who were allowed to eat whatever they wanted and had no intervention whatsoever. And then there was a second trial, the Lipid Research Center, LRCCPT, uh, clinical prevention trial, maybe. That was, I think, a $115 million one. That was a trial of a um, cholesterol-lowering drug called cholestyramine. Um, And uh, they put both groups on the low-cholesterol diet because they thought to not do that would be um, unethical, even though they were testing the hypothesis that cholesterol is the driver of heart disease. And that study got a trivial positive result. Again, if you did a, um, back then you could get away with changing your statistical analysis plan. When your strict statistical analysis didn't actually show an effect, you could do a less strict analysis and publish that. And because there was no clinicaltrials.gov to, you know, record what you were going to do originally, it was easier to get away with, and particularly easier to get away with when you were spending $115 million and trying to save the lives of, you know, tens of millions of Americans. So that trial came out positive and that the people on the cholesterol-lowering drug had a little bit of a benefit. And so it wasn't a diet trial, but they assumed 
that if a drug that lowers cholesterol makes men with very high cholesterol live a little bit longer, a few months, then a diet that lowers cholesterol will make everybody in the world, children, women, babies, senior citizens, transgender, pregnant, obese, lean, you name it, every single human being in America live longer. Therefore, we're going to tell Americans to go on a low-fat diet. And they, um, there were a series of reports, first a consensus panel from the NIH, then a, um, uh, the National Cholesterol Education Program, which I think is still with us, was instituted. They put out a huge report. Then the Surgeon General put out a huge report. Then the National Academy of Sciences put out a huge report, all of them arguing that we have to lower cholesterol, we have to eat less fat, we should, nothing else, the animal fat we eat should be vegetable oils instead. Um, we should replace the fat in our diet with carbohydrates. It was a public relations campaign, and the idea being tens of millions of lives can be saved or extended based on this terrible evidence. Um, and um, we followed their advice. You know, we did what they said. You look at the meat consumption in America comes down, animal fat consumption drops, you know, butter and lard consumption drops. It's replaced by vegetable oils. We switch from eating red meat to chicken. Um, skinless chicken breasts come in. Along with this, we dose the country with more and more sugar because while we're, if we're blaming fat, sugar is kind of benign and gets a pass. So you get things like low-fat, low-calorie yogurt where you replace the fat you with high-fructose corn syrup and the remains of fruit, and now <laughs> you have this sugary food-like substance that you can say is heart healthy. If you put in a small enough tub, it's even low calorie. So it's low calorie, low fat. The, the whole thing in retrospect, well, it was described at the time as an experiment in which the, this was the head of the National Academy of Sciences described it this way. Um, an experiment in which the American public were being used as the subjects, except that the world followed in our footsteps. So once we declared this to be a fait accompli, so did the English, then Europe, the rest of Europe, Australia. So anyway, that was it. Um, wow. All along, you had this initial thinking that carbohydrates are fattening, and the metabolism researchers are discovering that why carbohydrates are fattening through their influence of insulin, even though they're not linking the two because they, they're working in their laboratories, they're not actually thinking of themselves as studying obesity. And a subset of the nutrition endocrinology uh, field follows this path of looking at the cause of heart disease in which they link it to insulin resistance and high triglycerides and low HDL cholesterol. So you get a sort of subset of the cardiology diabetes community that thinks that the cause of heart disease is what we now think of as metabolic syndrome. Mm -hmm. Okay. But because the main, you know, establishment is hammering on the cholesterol and all the money has been spent going after the cholesterol hypothesis, this remains sort of a sub uh, subset, a small sort of group of researchers whose research gets more and more compelling. And it, 
end result is if you look at the research without preconceptions, it argues that the same carbohydrates that make us fat and are so uh, deleterious in diabetes are the same carbohydrates that give us heart disease and hypertension and stroke and probably cancer as well. And they all work through insulin and this condition called insulin resistance. And that's becoming textbook medicine. But instead of becoming textbook medicine as an alternative hypothesis, the research community will refer to it as like an emergent risk factor. So once we get you to stop eating cholesterol, stop eating dietary fat to lower your cholesterol, now we could pay attention to the sugar and the white flour and the, the damage being done by insulin resistance. But what they don't think is when we're telling you to lower your cholesterol and lower your fat consumption or even eat fewer animal fats and more vegetable oils, you're actually making this insulin resistance problem worse. In the book, The Case for Keto, people will learn you know, what, what they can eat. You also talk about abstinence. You talk about addiction. You write, quote, many of the physicians I interviewed for this book spoke about their own health and approach to low-carbohydrate, high-fat, ketogenic eating and addiction terms. And I think that's important because sugar is very addictive. Yeah. Well, it's not just sugar. I think carbs in general. It's funny. I'm doing this. And I think I mentioned I'm doing this uh, work for a book on diabetes, and I'm obsessed with the history of it. And you can find quotes from like 1860, when the standard of care for diabetes was an animal diet, right? It's you've got you can't metabolize carbohydrates, don't eat them. So not only did you eat exclusively animal foods, you, the green vegetables that you could eat with it were boiled three times. So they didn't have and digestible carbs <laughs> left in them. And the doctors would say, you know, if I were to, no patient, nobody ever told me that bread or bagels or pasta was their favorite food until I told them they can't eat carbohydrates. And then it's like, I can't live without these foods. Um, there are a lot of reasons why sort of these foods would create cravings. So when you're eating a carb-rich diet, and particularly when you're insulin resistant, and if we're overweight or obese or we're on the, the spectrum from pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes, we are insulin resistant. And when we're insulin resistant, carbohydrates are our fuel. So that's what we burn. That's So we hunger for that. When we're hungering for food, we are hungering for carbohydrates because the elevated insulin is telling the lean tissue to burn carbs and the fat cells to store fat. So carbohydrates are fuel. That's it. So that's what we crave. Um, and sugar, particularly for reasons that would take us another hour to discuss. So if you try to eat these foods in moderation, you'll continually crave them. Your body will continually be in a condition where it wants your cells in an environment where they're being stimulated to burn carbs. So they're going to want carbs and your body is going to crave carbs. Um, and so these physicians talked about not only their own experience, but often they would talk about how they viewed what they were doing professionally. It's not like the weight loss advice, but the carbohydrate addiction rehabilitation program. So how can we get people off these foods and keep them off. Because again, if you go back to, you can't do the, the diet psychology just 
doesn't work, right? I'm going to not eat carbs for six months. I'm going to lose 50 pounds and I'm going to go back to eating carbs in moderation. It's not going to work. So as soon as you add the carbs back, you'll start fattening again from the carbohydrates. They'll do the same thing they always do. So you have to live without them. That's it. It's like some of us can eat them. Some of us can't. Um, and for those who can't, if we though they're if we think life is not worth living without them, which you know is how I used to think about cigarettes, and I still do about coffee, um, then we have an addiction, and we have to learn that we can get over it. That it'll take you know there'll be it'll be hard for the first few months, and then it'll get easier, and eventually we'll be completely glad we got over it, and then it'll be pretty much effortless to live without it. But if we start to slip, we'll always be in danger of slipping further. So we'll always have to know how to, you know, check our addiction in the future. So a lot of the lessons I give in the back of the book are lessons just from the addiction literature. And they hold for sugar or, or carbs in general as much as they hold for cigarettes and alcohol. And All right, Gary, tell us how we can find you, find your books, and especially the case for keto, um, all that. Okay, so the website is GaryTalbs.com. The I tweet at, at Gary Talbs, very original Twitter handle. Um, and the books, I hope, will be available at your local independent bookstore, assuming your local independent bookstore is available. And if they're not, certainly on Amazon, Target is carrying the case for oh, keto. Oh, great. As well as with video advertisements for it that are a little Yay. bit squirm-inducing. <laughs> um, you gotta check those out. It's you know I've thought about tweeting them because somebody went through you the should. trouble, but it's like ooh, I don't know. Let me send them to me. I'll, I'll I'll be I'm a good judge of that kind of thing. <laughs> we'll see. And go to Target. Okay. Socially distant. Wear a mask. Yes, but as of, of December twenty ninth, they'll be on sale at Target. This is great, Gary. I appreciate you taking so much time. I. I'm such a huge fan. I really admire your work. I admire your research and your books are fabulous. Thank you so much. You can find me on social media at Lisa Davis MPH. Thanks so much for listening.